Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our eighth episode, Real Clear defense editor David Craig and Real Clear books editor John Waters talk with Senator John McCain about the upcoming defense budget and the Russian hacking allegations. Today, I'm David Craig, the editor for Real Clear Defense, and with me is John Waters, the editor for Real Clear Books. Um, first off, I, I wanted to ask you about the Trump budget proposal. Mm -hmm. Like we mentioned previously, the media was all over it, making it sound like it was this monumental increase that was going to fulfill his campaign promises. However, when you looked at it, it was only a 3% increase over what Obama had probably set for the Hillary administration, assuming that she would have been president. But contrasting to what you and, and Representative Thornberry had worked on, it falls well short of that. Can you kind of expound on that? I think it's an indication of where you use as a baseline for numbers, and it really was a false assumption. It was, when you look at real numbers, it was an increase of only 3%. Now look, two-thirds of the F-18s, our frontline fighters, are not flying. Our pilots are flying less than their Russian and Chinese counterparts. Two of the 60 combat brigades in the United States Army are at the highest level of readiness. A thousand pilots, uh, the Air Force is a thousand pilots short, okay? We have had eight years of actual decreasing in real numbers of defense spending. And the first thing that goes is maintenance, readiness, training, and we now have a military that our military leaders, all our uniform military leaders have said, we are putting the lives of the men and women in uniform at greater risk. Now that's their statement, okay? <laughs> so when I see my friends, our greatest threat is the debt and the deficit, and I understand that. Mm. But the immediate threat is why are we putting the lives of these young men and women at greater risk? And at the doorstep, the Blame lies at the doorstep of both eight years of Obama, but also sequestration, which was generated in the United States Congress by Republicans. Well, that kind of leads into one of my other questions I was going to ask later. But once you uh, go into committee with the House and agree, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on a compromise with the defense budget, the next step, of course, is going to be try to get it through Congress and uh, the opposition that we might expect from the Democrats. Will they, will they potentially try to filibuster, or you know, the, a lot of other people are saying they're going to expect uh, an equal increase in discretionary spending. Um, well, two points. One is that I'm not sure that, from what I'm hearing, that a budget from this administration would pass the Congress. Second, my Democrat friends keep saying that you have to have a commensurate increase in non-defense spending as long, along with defense spending. Look, uh, first of all, I would agree CIA, the uh, intelligence services, many other agencies of government that have to do with national defense, I'd be glad to. But right now we've got a world on fire and we've got more challenges than at any time in the last 70 years by any objective assessment. And so to put non-defense spending on the exact same level as defense spending ignores the reality of this planet. Absolutely. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, going back to uh, your white paper that you had mentioned mm -hmm. that was you know, lauded by you know, 
bipartisan analysts um, was the way you went about the uh, modernization and what, you know, everyone's touting the naval um, increases in spending, you know, and, and, and plussing up and uh, getting our shipbuilding on par with to meet the requirement. However, you know, what a lot of people probably don't notice is you, you allocated a larger portion of that budget back to the Army. Uh, can you sort of explain how you arrived at your breakdown by service? The Army is, uh, as you know, not only the smallest since before World War II, but not ready. In other words, two of their combat brigades are at the highest level of readiness. And we can't, we can't fight with that kind of unreadiness of the United States Army. The United States Army has taken the greatest cuts. So I think that it's not just adding people, it's adding capability. We're in a cyber war. We are now facing uh, potential adversaries that have increased their capabilities dramatically. I'm particularly talking about Russia and China, but also the Iranian, and China, uh, the Iranian issue continues to loom out there. So we not only need to increase the size, but it's a matter of capability in this new environment, which is dictated by capabilities that we never envisioned 20 years ago, including cyber war, including the possibility of shutting down every satellite there is, including the uh, uh, possibility of uh, shutting down our utilities. Um, so we have to not only add size, but capabilities that are in keeping with the challenges of the 21st century. Senator, you mentioned a moment ago that the world is under greater threat, or America is under greater threat from the world than at any other time in the past 70 years. Yep. Would you say the readiness is at a lower point than it has been at any other time in the past 70 years as well? No, after the Vietnam War, we let our military readiness decline to the place where the Chief of Staff of the United States Army, I still remember General Meyer. General Meyer came over before the Armed Services Committee and told the committee that we have a hollow army. Now that was a reaction to our loss of the Vietnam War. That was a reaction that the American people said, we can't get in any more conflicts, so therefore we don't have to fund defense. And then of course, as we saw events transpire such as the Russian uh, behavior in many areas that we began to gather support for increased defense spending and of course Ronald Reagan was a catalyst. <clears throat> Peace through strength. <laughs> um, aside from the white paper that's more recent, another thing I wanted to speak to you about sir, was the, you know, last year your proposal for the restructuring of the Pentagon, you, you broached the Goldwater-Nichols reform. Um, and then all the way down to ATNL. Can you sort of have some of the changes with the JCS? It, it seems like they still haven't changed the COCOM structure. The COCOMs, uh, I think, still need to be restructured, and that's a, one of the major challenges. But we did put the service chiefs in charge again for acquisition. Up in, I'll never forget one of the hearings when uh, it was uh, on the F-35 which as you know has become the costliest weapon system in history. And I said, who is responsible? And mm -hmm. the uniform, 
I believe was that time chief of staff of the Air Force, said, we're all responsible. And so you know when we're all responsible, no nobody responsible. is responsible. So we put them into the loop. We have divided up AT&L so that we have a, one division that runs the business of the Pentagon and the other is acquisition. We need to, we've uh, uh, cut the senior executive service. We have cut the uh, NSC staff down to 200. We have um, continued to need to make greater changes and one of the that is not done is a consolidation of the COCOMs. When you have a four-star admiral or general, then you have three stars, and then you have two stars, and then you have one stars. <laughs> so, you know, when you, when you do away with a COCOM, you don't just do away with a four-star, you do away with an entire massive <coughs> bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to consolidate some of these. No one ever, has ever explained to me why we have a NORTHCOM and a SOUTHCOM in our own hemisphere. <laughs> right. Is that insane? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and then to, to tack on to that, it's for going a little deeper with some of the acquisition things, one thing that came to mind when, you know, I've looked at some of this is, you know, the different services are always competing for pieces of the pie. Do you think that maybe they should even work more closely on uh, the various acquisition programs to better prioritize to meet the needs of all the services? Or do you think that would create yeah, I a think I think sometimes competition is healthy, but... There are more challenges which cross lines between services. What's our greatest, newest threat? Cyber. Mm -hmm. that, that has nothing to do with the uniform. That has a hell of a lot to do with our ability to counter it, when no matter whether you're wearing uh, navy blue or, or army gray, I mean, gray, green, <laughs> whatever the hell army wears. <laughs> and, and so uh, there are more, uh, threats that cross uniform lines, service lines, and we've got to do a better job of melding those services so that they're not always competing with each other, but cooperating with each other. You know, the Trump, uh, you know, affiliations with Russia really kind of highlighted the Russian threat, especially in the cyber realm, but what kind of just me, you know, having followed it in the military is they've been a threat in this regard since the post-Cold War since even Gorbachev had taken, you know, the, the wall had fallen, so to speak. Why is it just now that people are, and do you think, where do you think it will go? Do you think we'll actually accomplish anything out of this by highlighting the... We the won the Cold threat? War, the Berlin Wall came down, um, Russia descended into a state of chaos their economy continued down as they tried to make the transition from a state-controlled economy to a free market economy, and the people of Russia suffered. And they not only suffered economically, but they suffered in the prestige aspect that has always characterized the Russians. And so along came Vladimir Putin, the KGB colonel, who speaks fluent German, by the way, because he was once the station chief, Russian station chief in which is Germany, which helps with your language capabilities. That's his history with Angela Merkel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so along came Vladimir Putin, who enjoys high favorability amongst the Russian people because he's restoring the Russian Empire. He is, uh, as we know, uh, 
divided Ukraine. He is putting enormous pressure on the Baltics. He is now a major player in the Middle East. All these things we all know. And he's doing it with the world's 15th largest economy. He is playing a, a very, very clever hand. He was playing a weak hand cleverly. And uh, he will continue until it's not worth it for him to keep going. And that's why we need, and I've done some things. I've got to admit the European Reassurance Initiative was very helpful. More of our stationing training in the Baltics, um, uh, perhaps um, more air defense capabilities. There's a lot we have done, but there's one heck of a lot more that we've got to do. And I promise you that Vladimir Putin will continue his behavior as long as it is profitable for him to do so. And if it means murdering Boris Nemtsov in the shadow of the Kremlin, if it means uh, poisoning Vladimir Karamutsa, if it means uh, setting fire to a theater and killing innocent people, that's fine with him. Um, you know, another concern with that, and you know, it seems like it's an opportunity for the United States to take the lead on this is, I mean, obviously their information operations, their cyber abilities that sprouted out of the, you know, the, when Ray, mm -hmm. Rogan, or Reagan, I'm sorry, broke the bank on them, they invested heavily in cyber, which is, I guess, why they became so good. But what they're doing in Europe as, as well with their information operations, their money of buying influence with the European governments. It's well known, for example, they're playing in the French election now. And every indication they will try to affect the German election. So uh, the one goal that Vladimir Putin has is to break up the NATO alliance. And he has put strains on both the NATO alliance and the European Union that may succeed when you look at the flood of refugees the millions of refugees that are flooding into European countries and the backlash that we're seeing with some of those countries. Can, European Union is in greater strain than at any time in its entire history. Shifting gears, Senator, you came of age as a young naval officer, uh, obviously your service in Vietnam as well. How does your military career, how has it informed the way that you conduct business here in Congress, especially being one of the few remaining Vietnam veterans still serving in government? Well, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and um, I don't care to recount them all to you. But I do know that my training at the Naval Academy and my experiences in the military, especially time spent as a guest of the North Vietnamese, um, gave me some principles and some ideals that have guided my behavior throughout my political career, and it's always stood me in good stead. And by the way, those that I still love most and know best are those that I spent time as guests of the North Vietnamese with. And finally, my last question, do you have any books to recommend or share with us recently or through, through your time that have really shaped you? The book that probably shaped me the most in my life was uh, I read when I was 12 years old, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Robert Jordan, who is the protagonist, uh, who is a professor from Montana that leaves his home and goes to fight for a cause that he believes in, even though he knows it's flawed and he knows it'll probably fail. It's a, 
He's been my inspiration my whole life. I've always wanted to be Robert Jordan. He also, by the way, fell in love with a beautiful Spanish girl, which, <laughs> which heightened my ambition even more. Thank you for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.